I love all the new songs. I love the old ones too and the, the message of those two songs. There is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. It's a message we need to hear. It's really the message of the psalm this morning before us. I'd encourage you to take your Bibles and open, if you would, to Psalm 78. It was a little over a hundred years ago, George Santayana, uh, the poet and philosopher, not Carlos Santana, the guitar player, just to make that clear. George Santayana was about a hundred years ago, and he penned then what has become now a fairly well-known, familiar quote. He said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. In other words, we are wise if we choose to learn from the mistakes of others rather than insisting on testing them ourselves. There's a connection between remembering the past, between learning from history and living wisely. Because of that, there can be an advantage to being the younger sibling growing up in a household. I remember when our kids were little and my wife or I would be disciplining our daughter from some misdeed she had committed. And while she's, you know, really getting it, I would glance over and I would see my son just taking it all in. You could see the gears moving in his mind as he's going, huh, that didn't work out so well. You know, note to self, don't try that. So there's advantage to being able to learn from the mistakes of others. It's a biblical concept. The Apostle Paul in the, in the book of 1 Corinthians, that letter, chapter 10, he there lists a number of failures, a number of times that the people of Israel just blew it. And then he says this, he says, now these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction. Paul says God has written down the history of Israel so that you and I can look at their examples and we can learn. We can learn from the things that went well and we can learn from their mistakes. We can learn from their failures. So we won't follow in their sandals. That same principle is behind the writing here of Psalm 78. It's written by Asaph. Uh, if you recall, if you've been around this or other times in our studies, as we've talked about Asaph even this summer, you'll recall he was appointed by King David as the head music director for temple worship. Twelve of the Psalms bear his name as composer. And he wrote this Psalm. He wrote this Psalm to encourage us, to encourage you and me to invest ourselves, to invest ourselves intentionally, to invest ourselves diligently and faithfully in the next generation. To look to raise up the generation that follows us and the generation that follows them to be those who follow the Lord. As he says in verse 7, you'll note he says, that we want these next generations to be those who set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, 
but keep His commandments. So Asaph specifically wants this next generation to learn, and he wants them to learn from the negative examples of their ancestors, the Jews, the Israelites, the children of Israel. He wants them not to follow in their footsteps. And you look in verse 8, he says, "...so that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast and whose spirit was not faithful to God." I have preached a few times before on the first eight verses of this psalm, so I'm not going to do that again this morning. But rather this morning I wanted to focus with Asaph as he does in the rest of the psalm and look at some of the negative examples of Israel. Specifically this morning we're going to look at one of those negative examples. But the question before us this morning is this. It's can God be trusted? Asaph's purpose is to call us and to call the next generations to set their hope, to set our hope in God. To not forget His works and to keep His commandments. But if we're going to do that, we have to ask the question, can God be trusted? Is God trustworthy? If I want to set my hope in Him, if I want to follow His Word, I have to answer that question. That makes this question very as contemporary and as, as vital today as it was in the day when Asaph penned this psalm. Because each individual in every generation has to answer this question. Can God be trusted? As I said, Asaph takes us back in history. And we're looking this morning in verses 11 through 32. We're going to look back to a time in Israel's history where if they answered that question, they would have said no. Can God be trusted? And they, they said, no, we don't trust God. We won't turn there this morning, but I encourage you perhaps this afternoon or, or if you get bored during the sermon, you can turn there and read. Back in Numbers chapter 11 is where the story that is before us here in Psalm 78, verses 11-32, that's where you'll find the history, the story behind this story here in Psalm. Asaph summarizes the problem, their situation in a nutshell, down in verse 22, where he says that they did not believe in God and they did not trust His saving power. In other words, he's not saying that the Israelites don't believe in God, meaning they don't believe He exists. They did. They knew He existed. matter of fact, in this time, when the, in the account back in Numbers chapter 11, the presence of God was visible in a cloud by day and in fire at night. There was no question that God exists. Their question was, do we, not do we believe in Him, it's do we believe Him? Do we trust what He says? And is He capable of meeting our need, of dealing with our problem? The problem is they didn't believe God and they didn't trust His power. They didn't somehow, they somehow they didn't think He was up to the job. The job is bigger than He can handle. It's, it's a bigger problem than He can deal with. 
Or if He can deal with it, we're not sure we can trust Him to keep our best interests at heart. And if we're honest, all of us have been there. All of us have been there at times wondering, does God really have my best interest at heart? Or can God really deal with this situation? You go back to the original sin, all had to do with, can God be trusted? As Satan tempted Eve and Adam, he said, did God really say? And if He said that, don't you think He's, Don't you think he might just have an ulterior motive here? He's holding back on you. And they bit. It's a very big question. Can God be trusted? It's especially interesting to me because as he refers back and looks back on this this incident, this event in Numbers chapter 11, it was not that many months before. It was less than a year before that the people of Israel said, Yes, God, we want to be Your people. Yes, God, we will follow You. Yes, God, we will obey whatever You say. It was at the foot of Mount Sinai, just not that many months before that, that they said those very words. What happened? How did they get from Yes, God, we'll follow You anywhere. We'll do whatever You say to, as Asaph says here, verse 22, they did not believe God nor trust His saving power. Well, Asaph tells us four things that led them to this pitiful condition. Four problems with the Israelites. We ought to pay attention. Verses 11 through 16 says they forgot His works and the wonders that He had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, He performed wonders in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan. He divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime, He led them with the cloud and, it, and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. You recall that the Israelites had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. God raised up Moses to deliver them out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery, and deliver them to the the land of promise, to the land of Canaan. The land that God had promised to Abraham back in Genesis 15. And I will give to you and your descendants. He says, it's not going to happen now, but he says, your descendants are going to go and be enslaved 400 years. And after that, they will come out and possess this land with the people of Israel that Asaph is writing about. It was that time. God had delivered them out of Egypt. It took sending ten plagues upon the land of Egypt to get Pharaoh to say, okay, okay, take your people and go. The Israelites were witnesses to all of those plagues. They saw in them God's glory. They saw in them God's power. 
They saw in them God's goodness. And as a result of those, some two million Jews were released from slavery. And they walked out of Egypt free people. It was just short of a year and two months before this event that Asaph is talking about in Numbers chapter 11. After they had left, Pharaoh changed his mind and sent his armies in pursuit of the Israelites to bring them back. You recall what happened. The Israelites had come to the Red Sea and God parts the Red Sea, the waters of the sea, as Asaph says, piles them up in a heap. They walk across on dry ground. When they get to the other side, they are witnesses not only of that, but they see the Pharaoh's army start to pursue them through the, between the waters and they see God close the waters back over and destroy Pharaoh's army in a moment. They were witnesses of those things. Every day since then, they have witnessed God's presence with them in, as we've noted earlier, in the cloud by day, shade in the desert, and in fire at night. In the midst of a dry wilderness, they have seen God through His mercy and goodness and power, seen Him bring forth water out of rocks. Water out of rocks that provided abundant water for two million people. But Asaph says the first thing that went wrong with these people is they had a poor memory. They forgot all that God had done and all that God was still doing. But before you and I get a little too critical of the Israelites and start to throw rocks at them, may I suggest that you are probably as guilty as I am, maybe not as guilty as I am, but that we all have a tendency to forget. God has been good to us in so many ways. He has done so much good for us. He continues to do so much good for us day by day and we forget it. We ignore it. We fail to be grateful. We fail to be thankful. Romans chapter 1, by the way, as Paul goes through and is listing all these awful sins, he said they glorified they did not glorify God nor give Him thanks. It is a sin to not be grateful. To not be thankful. It is also can be a fatal mistake to have a poor memory. There's a second problem with these people. Not only do they have a poor memory at remembering God's goodness, look at verse 17, yet they sinned still more against Him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. The second problem these folks had, after ignoring all of God's goodness, they continued their sinning by rebelling against Him, by rebelling against His leadership. They didn't like the way God was leading them. They didn't like God's direction. And we can take that both metaphorically and literally. Direction. Numbers 11, where this event is recorded, tells us that they had just, three days before this, they had just resumed 
their, their trek to the promised land. When they left Egypt, it took a couple of months to get down to Sinai, Mount Sinai, where they stayed for 11 months. And then they move three days. And that's where the incident in Numbers 11 takes place. After just three days of travel, three days on the road again, they start rebelling. Moms and dads, we get that if you've ever traveled with kids for three days. Apparently adults were not much different. Look at Whenever I see pictures of Sinai, I've never been there. Really, have it's not on my bucket list of places to visit because I've seen pictures. And every picture I've seen of Sinai looks like that. Mountainous desert, hilly desert. There, there is nothing in any of the pictures that I have seen, nor from anything I've heard from people that have been there, there is nothing there in Sinai that says, hey, this would be a great place to take a hike. Nothing that says even more, hey, you know what? Let's get a couple million of our best friends and let's go for a walk through Sinai. Does it look like fun? Not to me. So I get it when I see that the travel starts and the folks, after three days of it, they go, pull! This is not fun. God had taken them into this wilderness and they said, it's not a fun place. It's actually kind of interesting when you look back and you look at when the Israelites left Egypt And they head, as Moses takes them out of slavery, they are headed for where? For Canaan, for the promised land, for Israel. Well, you know, if you look at a map sometime, I just happen to have one on the screen. If you look at a map and you say, if you're in Egypt, over there just above Goshen, to the right of lower Egypt there, that's where they were, And you say, we want to go to Israel. The easiest, quickest, shortest way is what? It's to the northeast. Let's go that way. But when you read the Bible and you see where they went, what did they do? They went south-southeast. And you go, huh, right into the Sinai. And you know, what in the world is going on? Does Moses just have a really bad sense of direction? Did he forget to update Google Maps on his phone when they left? <laughs> and it still said that there was a, you know, a, a traffic jam on the way to the, of Philistia. What happened? Exodus 13 gives us some important information. Exodus 13 says this, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them. It wasn't Moses made a mistake. God did not lead them by the land of the Philistines. or Excuse me, by the way of the land of the Philistines. The highway up there along the coast road, the north route, it was called the way of the Philistines, the highway to Philistia. Notice what he says next. Although that was near. That's the short way. 
For God said, lest the people change their mind when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. God deliberately did not take them the short way, the easy way. God took them the hard way, the difficult way, through the wilderness down south. It's worth noting because God says there's a purpose. One purpose God states here is that they weren't ready. They needed preparation. He took them the long and difficult way because He said if they go the other way, they'll get to Philistia. First thing that's going to happen is the Philistines are going to come out for war. And the first taste of that, they're going to run back for Egypt. After all, these folks for 400 years had been slaves, not warriors. They weren't prepared for war. But there's more than that. What we realize as we, we go on and we see what God is doing in their time in the wilderness, they get down to Sinai. You see, God knows that He needs to prepare them to become a nation. All these years they've been slaves, but they have not been a nation. They need organization. They need structure. They need laws. At Sinai they get all that. But more than that, most of all, God intends for all this time in the wilderness to be time where they are able to get to know Him, where they are able to get to know the God who has called them out, the God who has called them to be His people, to get to know God in His character, to get to know God in His power, to get to know God in a relationship so they will trust Him. So that when they get to the place where they are to take on the conquest of Canaan, they know they can rely on God. The wilderness had a purpose. God has never promised to take us, to take them or to take us, you and me, on the easy road. He's never promised to take us on the shortcut. His purpose with us as it was with them is to grow a people who know Him, who love Him, who follow Him. And sometimes, despite the claims of many prosperity teachers today, God has not promised us health and wealth in this present life. Nor has He promised that we will not go through the wilderness nor that we will bypass pain and bypass suffering and bypass adversity. Instead, what the Bible teaches very clearly is that many times God takes us straight into adversity. He takes us right down the middle of the way into difficulty and suffering. But not because God hates us, not because God is impotent or uncaring, but precisely because God does care. Romans 8.28, if you haven't memorized the verse, you ought to. And we know that in all things, God works for the good for those of those who love Him who have been called according to His purpose. In all circumstances, 
the good and the wilderness. It is continued faith in God's power and His goodness that keeps us going through the wilderness times. That is why it is people who know God in that way that they can say in the midst of great adversity along with Job, who you recall said, though He slay me, I will hope in Him. I may not always understand, I may not always like where I am or where God has put me, but even if He slays me, I will hope, I will trust in Him. That's why our brother Ansley Young, who has endured much, so much, in his battle with cancer, now suffering with excruciating burns externally and internally from reaction to medicine. I was there Friday with him and he said, God is good. and God has a good plan. I'm not sure I would be saying that in his circumstance. When I read Job... I don't see anything worse there in what he was feeling than what our brother Ansley is going through. Pray for him today. That he would keep the faith in the wilderness. There's a third problem they had. Verse 18. They had a poor memory. They didn't like God's direction. Verse 18, it says, they tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. Their complaint here, and as we look back in in Numbers chapter 11, their complaint is about food. They crave food, and many of us can identify with this because some of us probably like food. Do you like food? We don't complain about food. We don't complain because we don't have food, because we have it. What we complain about is, you know, when we don't have ice for our soda. What we complain about is when dinner is a little bit late. Pastor's going late again. What we complain about is, you know, it's not what I like. The French fries are cold. Whatever. We're so spoiled, we're so used to getting our fill and generally having what we like. We get it when the complaint is about food. Think of it. They're in the Sinai Desert. That picture we saw a minute ago. They're in the Sinai Desert. There are no farms. There are no restaurants. There's no Deerbergs, no Schnooks, no Aldi, no Save-A-Lot. First of all, that alone would kill us. If there were no stores, we'd just die. (laughs) Who knows how to grow food? There's no refrigerators. Two million people in the Sinai. Do the math. Dinner time is going to be a problem. Two months into the journey, almost a year before, two months into their journey, the provisions they had taken out from Egypt began to run slim. And God performed a miracle. Exodus chapter 16, God sent manna. 
Actually, Asaph in his psalm mentions it down a few verses later. Look in verse 23. Yet He, God, commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven and He rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate of the bread of the angels and He sent them food in abundance. You know the story of the manna. It just appeared in the morning with the dew. All they had to do was go out and gather it. From that day... Just almost a year before until this day in Numbers chapter 11, every single day was a miracle of food. It says that the manna there was, when they could go out and gather, they could gather an abundance. All you could want, they could get. Every day, every morning it was there, six days a week, on Friday the sixth day, they could gather double. On the other day, it would spoil. But on that day, they would gather because on the seventh day, it didn't come. Every single day, every single week, for a year, there's been a miracle of food. The rebellion here that Asaph says was about food, but it wasn't about a lack of food. The rebellion... You'll notice verse 18 carefully, it says, was about the food they craved. It's about the food they didn't have. Numbers 11 says what they wanted was something different. What they wanted was they wanted fish. What they wanted was melons. What they wanted was cucumbers. What they wanted was leeks and onion and garlic. What they wanted was meat. And they said there in Numbers 11, but we've lost our appetite. Because we never see anything but this manna. You see, what they had was miraculous provision, but what they desired was their cravings. Oh, I sure would like some ice cream right now. Oh, you know, for you Texans, you'd appreciate this. I'd love a Whataburger. Yeah. Don't even know what that is in Missouri, but we know. God was meeting their needs, but they wanted more. God was taking them from slavery to the land of promise, the land flowing with milk and honey. The wilderness was a temporary place and a necessary place between the two and a purposeful place. But they wanted what they wanted now. Any of you ever have that problem? We've all been there. We are all there all the time. That's why what these, these issues here that he's pointing out with the, with the Israelites, they're so pertinent because they are us. So like the three-year-old in the checkout lane, they throw a tantrum because mommy won't buy them the shiny thing or the sweet thing that's there. We've all been there, either as the kid or the parent or the person stuck behind that kid and the parent when the tantrum is going on. Or like the 18-year-old in India this past week who got a, for his birthday a brand new BMW and he pushed it into the river because he wanted a Jaguar. And he said, what a spoiled brat! Except look in the mirror. 
And what you'll discover is a spoiled brat. That's so often how we treat God. Instead of remembering and being thankful and being grateful for what we have, we complain because of what we don't have. That is what the Israelites did and it moved them to the deadly place where they did not believe God nor trust His saving power. Because of that, verses 19 and 20, they spoke against God saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that the water gushed out and the streams overflowed. Can He also give bread or provide meat for His people? They had poor memory. They didn't like God's direction. They demanded their desires. And then it turned to they belittled God. They questioned God's ability to provide. Whether they were sarcastic or genuinely just didn't think He could, I don't know. But they're just saying, can God do it? Sure, He can bring water out of rocks, but yeah, can He deliver a Whataburger here today? Verse 20 and 21, God responded, not surprisingly. Verse 21, Therefore, when the Lord heard, He was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob, and His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust His saving power. Their rebellion, their complaints, their demands, their belittling of God, their lack of faith and their lack of trust aroused God's anger. In the next few verses, Asaph notes, as we've already read, that he reminded us that God had already been providing through His mercy and grace, had already been providing goodness to them every single day, raining upon them food in the manna. And then God sends another miracle. Verse 26, look here. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens and by His power He let out the south wind and He rained meat upon them like dust. Winged birds like the sand of the sea, He let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings and they ate and were well filled for He gave them what they craved. These ungrateful little, you know, rugrats, like children, like that kid in India. God has been graciously providing all along, and they complain. And what does God do? He sends another miracle. You crave meat. Here's meat. What does it say He did? He sent birds, quail specifically. Numbers chapter 11 Quail so plentiful, God blew them in with the wind. Here they come, deposits them at their camp. So many of them, it says that it stretched not only all through the camp, but any direction you'd go, a day's journey, you just were in the thick of quail. They were flying down low, about two cubits it says, or three feet off the ground, so that they could easily be caught or just... Knocked down. You know, it'd be like take a baseball bat and you just go batting practice. It was quail season. You didn't need a permit. You just go pow, 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 pow. You're just knocking them down. It says the person who gathered the least over Numbers 11, the person who gathered the least gathered 60 bushels. Think about, you know, bushel basket, you know. 60 of them. What do you do with 60 quail? You eat them. And they did. 
It says, they ate and were, verse 29, they were filled, for He gave them what they craved. Note what comes next, verse 30. But before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them and He killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. God in His anger sent judgment. A severe plague swept through the camp and many of them died. The place became known, Numbers 11 tells us, as the graves of the craving. At first glance, though, that, that may appear to be, well, that God is maybe vindictive or God is kind of fickle. Yeah, you can have it. No, you can't. I'm going to kill you all. Is that God? No. God doesn't just throw a tantrum and say what I think happened here. God certainly judged the Israelites for their sin of ingratitude and rebellion and belittling and disbelief. But I don't think His judgment started with the plague. It started where we don't expect it. His judgment started by giving them the quail. Warren Wiersbe, as he often does, said it probably best. He put it this way. Sometimes God's greatest judgment is to give us what we want. Those things that we really shouldn't have, but we keep, no, no, I want it, I want it, I want it. That little tantrum, you know. And just And sometimes God says, okay, you want it, you got it. God's judgment came in giving them what they wanted and then let the nature take its course. You got 60 bushels of quail and a bunch of months of I want meat. And if you're a greedy complainer, you say, ah! maybe I'll start cooking them. <laughs> and... Uh, he had 60 bushels. By the way, it took him two days and a night. A day, a night, and a day. They're out there getting these things. And I don't know because I've never checked. I'm not sure what the expiration date is that's stamped on the bottom of a quail. I know when I buy my meat at the, at Schnooks, you know, or, or Walmart, wherever, and it, it, it says on there, use or freeze by but I'm not sure what the expiration date is on a, on a quail that you just knocked out of the sky. I have a feeling it's not much more than a day. I'm just guessing. Remember, they don't have refrigeration. Numbers 11 says they spread them out over the camp. Presumably they're trying to dry them out. But usually you use salt and preservatives. There's no mention of that. What I think happens here is you've just got a massive case of food poisoning. Where people are just, oh yeah, we've been crying for this. God gave it to us. Look, God loves us. He poured quail everywhere. And they're on day three. When, oh. <laughs> Romans chapter 1. Some of the saddest words there is God is describing the sinful condition of men. 
And you'll notice in the progression it says, so God gave them over to their desires. God gave them over to their lusts. God gave them over. God gave the Israelites over to what they wanted. The result of this, some of the saddest words are probably the saddest words of this passage. Verse 32, in spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite His wonders, they did not believe. They did not believe God in the miracles of all of His care and goodness to them all this time. They did not believe God and trust Him despite all of now this tragedy that has come into their midst. They continued in unbelief. This gener- these folks, they made it from, from Egypt. They made it to the promised land. They get there, and you know the story. At Kadesh Barnea, they send in the spies to check out the land. They come back they say, the land is exactly what God said it was. The travel brochure was right. But by the way, there's giants in the land. We can't go. God said, go, trust me. And the, the same people who haven't been trusting God all, the way, all along the way, that every chance they get, they they fail, they get there and they still say, we, we don't trust God. That generation died off and never experienced the blessings God had for them in the land of promise. It was the next generation that went in. Asaph's concern is that no one misses the blessings that God intends for those who will love and follow Him. Those who will trust Him. That's the point. That's the point of this psalm. And so Asaph encourages us. He wants us to know that the answer to the question, can God be trusted? The answer is yes. And verse 7, what we should do then, instead of being like those folks, we should set our hope in God. Do not forget His works and keep His commandments. Father, thank You for being a loving God. You love us so much. You sent Jesus to pay for our sin. You have rescued us. You've called us to follow You. You've called us even as You call the people of Israel You call them to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. First Peter, you called us to be the same thing. To be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A people who follow you. There are blessings that come with that. It's not about cars and houses and all of those things. It's a blessing of relationship. It's a blessing of eternal joys. And there are great blessings along the way in walking with You. But forgive us for being so often so very much like those Israelites that we doubt You, we forget Your goodness, we complain, we chase our own desires and our own ideas and our own plans instead of following You. And we end up with a big mess on our hands and we wonder why. May we learn this morning from the example of the Israelites. May we not forget Your works. May we keep Your commandments. May we set our hope in You. In Jesus' name, Amen.